On behalf of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, let me welcome you to church and invite you to point your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, if you knew, I'm Jamie, one of the pastors here, and if you don't have a Bible, we've tried to provide one for you in the pew in front of you, and you'll find our passage today, Ephesians 4, on page 977, page 977 of the Pew Bible, bottom right-hand corner is where we'll pick up reading in verse 11. Now, normally we, here at PBC, we pick, up, we pick a book of the Bible, we work through the book verse by verse, um, but today we're in the middle of a series that we're calling Christ Exalting Worship, and we get this from our church's vision. Pickle Baptist Church exists to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ in Piqua and in Miami County and the world until Christ is all. And we seek to do this using four God-given means, through, primarily through the proclamation of the Bible, so uh, gospel-centered preaching, and secondarily through Christ-exalting worship, third, through Christ-forming discipleship, and then fourth, through Christ-like service. We're sort of parachuting in on Christ-exalting worship to sort of tease it out a little bit. Christ-exalting worship as we've already learned, is expressed in two different ways. First, the church gathered. So we're talking about things that we do on the Lord's Day morning. The church gathered. And then Christ's exalting worship is expressed in the church scattered. So how we worship Christ in our everyday lives. Specifically today, we're going to be looking at how formative and corrective Discipline in the life of a Christian shapes our worship. So formative and corrective discipline and how it shapes our worship. The big idea, if you can put this on the screen for me and take a minute or two to kind of focus in on this. It's a bit dense here and if you're taking notes, you can write this down. We'll leave it up there for a minute. The Christ-exalting worship is ruled by such a love for Jesus Christ and His church that each member takes an active role in applying and receiving formative and corrective discipline for the good of the church and the reputation of Christ. That's pretty dense. Let me read it again. Part of our worship as God's people is that we would be ruled by such a love for Jesus his reputation, his people, his church, that each one of us would take an active role in applying and receiving corrective and formative discipline so that the church would be built up and that the reputation of Christ would be preserved. That's the big idea this morning. We'll unpack that sentence in three parts, which I'll give you as we go along. Let's go ahead and Look at Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 11, and pray for the Lord's help on our time together, and then we'll jump in in teasing out what we mean by Christ's exalting worship. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, hear now the word of the Lord. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Lord, we humble ourselves before you and we ask that you would first receive our thanks for gathering us here in this place for another Lord's Day morning where we get to worship your Son, where we get to enjoy the fellowship of your people. But secondly, we ask, Lord, that you would be merciful to us today and give us understanding according to these uh, somewhat difficult things, that you would give us hearts that would be ready to receive your word, that you would make us teachable that you would give us ears, that we would hear what your Spirit is saying to us, your people. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Well, doctors tell us that in order to maintain a strong and healthy heart, we need two things, good diet and plenty of exercise. Diet and exercise, which none of this should come as any news to anyone here, and if you neglect either of those things, good diet or good exercise, there will be consequences. Uh, for example, you'll, need, you'll risk needing invasive forms of correction, like surgery. In the Bible, the church is often referred to as a body, the body of Christ. And like the physical body, the church body needs its own form of diet and exercise to maintain a healthy heart. We need a healthy diet of God's truth. To grow strong, to grow healthy, we need to grow in our knowledge of God and of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So think of it like the ministry of the Word forming us and shaping us and keeping us strong, keeping our heart beating the way it should. As we grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ, we become like Him. We imitate Him. We do as He did. We serve and give ourselves to helping others, to teaching others, to caring for others, for enduring with others, to bearing one another's burdens. And this is sort of like the exercise of our faith. So diet and exercise. Now, when we neglect a good spiritual diet, and we neglect a good, healthy spiritual exercise, we get sick. Hearts become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, and we need our own church form of corrective surgery 
We need brothers and sisters in Christ to step into our lives and to help cut sin out of our lives and apply the medicine of the gospel, so to speak. Now, this is what we call church discipline. It's sort of like surgery. And like surgery is a scary word, church discipline is a scary word. But I hope to show you from the text that we'll consider this morning that church discipline is actually not scary, but a good thing, a good thing for the health of the church, a good thing for the joy of the people, a good thing for the reputation of Christ in the community. And additionally, I hope to show you that a healthy church is doing church discipline all the time. And that if you've been a Christian for literally any amount of time, you've been undergoing church discipline throughout your life. You see, church discipline is sort of like a three-legged stool. One leg we'll call formative discipline where we are, as a collective body, being built up together in love, formative discipline. Another leg of the stool we'll call corrective discipline, where we're being corrected in love. And the third leg of the stool we'll call restorative discipline, where as a body we have the privilege of applying the reconciling power of the gospel to relationships that have been fractured by sin. So we'll take a a quick look at the first leg of the table, the leg that we're calling formative discipline. And I think that's what we'll see in the passage that we've just read from Ephesians chapter 4. Now look again from Verse 11 down to 14. And he, that is Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, that is pastors, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. God the Son, Jesus Christ, has given gifts to His people, the church. He's given apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherd teachers, pastors. And note the common thread of all of the people listed in verse 11. They are all of them ministers of God's Word. Proclaimers, those who tell others about the Lord and about His work. And through the ministry of the Word, the saints of God are equipped for the work of ministry. The body of Christ, that is the church, is being built up. And the ministry of the Word through preaching and praying, through singing, through one-to-one discipling, is equipping the saints of God and building up the church of God. Our Lord has willed that His church would be built upon and built up by His Word. And the longer that I've been a pastor, the more I am convinced 
that the Spirit of God will work through the Word of God on the people of God to form them into the likeness of the Son of God. And that is the essence of Christian ministry. This is what we call formative discipline. And this sort of thing is happening all the time. When the gospel is faithfully preached week after week, the saints of God are being equipped. The church is being built up. She's growing into Christ-likeness collectively. Not that she will ever achieve perfection, but by God's grace, she is always in the process of pursuing Christ-likeness, perfection. And this is the promise that is given to us in verse 13. Until we all attain the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, which Paul describes as the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And the reality is is that the church that we have is never the church that we want. We want the church triumphant. But God, in His wisdom, gives us the church militant, the church unfinished, the church with spots and wrinkles. And the reason she has spots and wrinkles is because you're here. You're welcome. You have spots and wrinkles, and you are the church. And so, what do we do with this? imperfect church. Well, we do a bit of the kind of work that Haggai did for Esther. We prepare her for her date with the king. How do we get the church ready? How does the church of Jesus Christ become that pure and spotless bride that he deserves? Well, the ministry of the word. From the pulpit, to the person, to the all. Colossians 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 28, Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Him we proclaim. The preaching of Christ. Well, those of you who've read the Bible, you know you've read the Corinthian letters. When Paul had to fix, what, a dozen problems going on in the church at Corinth, what did he resolve to do? I resolved to, do, to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Preaching the excellencies of Christ is the tide that lifts all the boats. When Christ is faithfully proclaimed, God's people are effectively changed. This is Paul again. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You see, as we grow in our knowledge of God, we are warmed in our affections for God. When we see the worth and the beauty of Jesus Christ, we have no option except to give all to Him. And So we say with the Apostle Paul that we're not perfect, but we press on to make it our own 
because Christ Jesus has made us his own. You see, the more that we know of who he is and what he has done for us, a wretch like us, the more we are moved to give our life to him, our all to him. We strive together towards purity and holiness, not so that he will make us uh, our, his own, but because he already has made us his own. And that this is our ministry philosophy, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, because we believe that when God's people see him, his spirit will stir up their delight in him, and they will go to war against anything in them that would obstruct their view of him or dull their enjoyment of him. Sanctification is just growing in your enjoyment and contentment in Christ. And then when God's people are stirred up in their delight and joy in the Lord, satisfied in Him, they want to share that joy with one another. They want to sit down together and say, I, I got to show you something I saw in Jesus. We call that discipleship. And Paul explains, and this is the effect of doing so in verse 14. As we grow in our knowledge of Christ and Christ's likeness, we become anchored, grounded, no longer tossed about by every wind of doctrine which blows through the church. Human cunning, craftiness, deceitful schemes, it can't get purchase in our hearts. We're too enamored with Jesus. We won't break eye contact. So pick up reading in verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him, who is the head, into Christ. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the ministry of the Word working through the people. Every member doing their part, speaking the truth in love, and we grow up in every way into Him. Since in church membership, our, our arms are locked together, when God lifts my brother and sister, I am lifted with him or her. The body builds itself up in love. This is formative discipline. The ministry of the Word forming the people of the Lord. And in a healthy church... This is happening all the time. Having lunch after worship on Sunday and talking about the text that was preached. Having dinner on a Saturday night to share the joys of the Lord. Reading Scripture with your children or with your grandchildren. A one-to-one -one Bible study through the book of Ephesians on a Tuesday morning over coffee turning up at prayer meetings, Sunday school, discipleship groups, send encouraging text messages to one another, 
each part working properly, every member discipling and being discipled, and the church is being built up in love. When this kind of culture, a discipleship culture is created, cultivated, and kept, inevitably, sin is going to be exposed and have to be dealt with, repented of. Anytime sinners worship together, they're going to bump into one another. They're going to need corrected. Relationships are going to need to be restored. And that brings us to the second leg of the table, which is corrective discipline. And I hope to show you that this isn't scary at all. It's good. It's good for all. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that on page 823. Matthew chapter 18. We're only going to have time to read three verses, although I think a full treatment of this subject requires the whole chapter. But for our purpose today, we'll only be considering verses 15 down to 17. Matthew chapter 18, in verse 15, let's just take each verse at a time. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Second leg of the table, corrective discipline. Now, I want to note five things from verse 15, five very important things that we cannot overlook about verse 15. The first thing is this. This is internal. If your brother sins against you, this is in the family. We don't do church discipline on those outside the church. We evangelize those outside the church. But we don't do church discipline on those outside the church if your brother sins against you. That's number one. Number two, this is about sin. If your brother sins against you. So we don't do corrective discipline on someone because we don't like something they did. We don't like how they've handled something. Corrective discipline isn't for mistakes made or matters of conscience, which Lord willing we'll consider in, in next week and the week after. We don't do church discipline on s- someone doing something unwise. Notice Jesus says, if your brother sins against you. So it has to be sin. It has to be clearly sin. So let me just put it this way. If, if you're going to your brother to address something, you better have chapter and verse. This is about sin. Third, church discipline at this level is intentionally private. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault 
between you and him alone. And this, I'm afraid, is where lots of people go wrong. You're told to go. Go to the Lord in prayer. Go to your brother who has sinned against you and go to no one else. When you have been sinned against, can I just encourage you to turn off your telephone and shut down your text messages? If necessary, smash that thing into a million pieces before you sin against the brother who sinned against you. Spilled tea is poison tea. It is you and him alone. Fourth, this is about reconciliation. Notice the Lord says, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. This is about reconciliation. God has given his people the ministry of reconciliation. You see, this is because in the church, we deal with stuff. We don't brush it under the rug. We don't run from it. We don't cut our losses and run. We do the hard thing, which is to go to your brother. That's the hard thing to do. It's so much easier to just erect a wall and run. I am just done with her. But Jesus says this is about reconciliation. We don't cut people off. When we get offended, we do the hard thing. We seek reconciliation because what we're after is forgiveness. We're after forgiveness. A sin has, committed, has been committed that has fractured a relationship that Christ himself has died to create. It's not a small thing. Disunity between a brother and a sister is not a small thing. It is something the blood of Christ was shed in order to purchase. So we take these things seriously. We deal with them. It's not easy. It's hard. But this is not really about digging through your fellow members' garbage in order to find sin in their life. This is about living in a gospel culture where sin is easily confessed and even more easily forgiven. We don't fight against one another. We fight for one another. Fifth. Fifth thing about Matthew 18. In a healthy church, Matthew 18, 15 is happening regularly and no one knows about it. It is you and him alone. Sin is confessed. Sin is repented of. Sin is joyfully forgiven. And no one outside of those two ever knows about it. And neither of the two, both of the two, promise that I'm not going to bring up that sin and that offense again to your hurt. I'm not going to hold it over your head. I'm not going to hold a grudge against you. 
When I said, I forgive you, it was the same as when Jesus said it to me. It is done. It is under the cross. We're not going to bring it up again. It's over. As Christians, we don't build walls and harbor bitterness because love keeps short accounts. And when verse 15 goes like it should, reconciliation happens. No one, no one even hears about it. But sadly, sometimes, and by God's grace, not often, but sometimes, verse 15 doesn't go like it should. And the person who has erred, the person who has sinned, for one reason or another, is unable to see their sin. They are unwilling to repent. So in this case, we move on to verse 16. Verse 16. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now notice, our Lord doesn't say how long of a period of time exists between verse 15 and 16. Depending on the situation, it may be a good bit of time. You may need to say, Sister, I love you. I hope that you see the sin you've committed against me. I'm eager to forgive you. And I'm going to give you some time. And I'm going to be praying for you. And if I don't hear from you by two weeks' time, two months' time, then I'm going to go to a trusted sister in the Lord, and I'm going to ask them to weigh in on this situation. And then we'll sit down with you. You need to give time. And then take one or two others along with you. And Jesus says, this is because the evidence must, this must be, we we must have witnesses, we must have evidence. Notice, this is, what is the sin? Is it actually sin? Or am I just being cantankerous? Am I just being a little emotional here? Notice, this verse is about building in some level of humility. Like, what if I don't have the right perspective on this? I could be wrong, charging a brother or sister in the Lord with sin that they haven't committed. And so I'm asking others to weigh in on this situation because I need their perspective. Is it sin? Or am I just easily offended? You're asking others to weigh in because you might not have the right perspective, especially if emotions are high. So what happens if you call others in and they're like, I don't see it, bro. I'm just being a little sensitive. I can see what you're coming from, but I just don't, I'm not there with you. What happens then? What if you don't have evidence and witnesses? Well, then you enjoy the Christ-exalting glory of overlooking an offense. 
Proverbs 19.11, it is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Now, at this point, it's probably wise to involve one of your pastors. You don't have to. Jesus doesn't say you have to. It's just a matter of wisdom. God has given you men, pastors, who it's their job to help you with things like this, to help you see if this is sin or not, to call you out if it's a non-sin issue that you're making into a big deal. So I recommend at this point that you involve a pastor. Now, if the witnesses all agree that there is an offense here and it is sin, and after approaching the brother, you give them more time. Again, our, our Lord wisely gives us no timeline here. We're to trust the Spirit of God will bring conviction, and often He does. Of course, under certain circumstances, the elders may need to move more quickly, but in most cases, we should err on the side of slowness and patience. Just stay where you are, pray like crazy, put your faith in the Spirit of God to do what He does best, which is to convict His people of their sin. And, and let me just say it again, put your hand over your mouth, pray to the situation to God and to no one else. Now, when people hear the phrase church discipline, they're usually thinking of verse 17. Okay, so let's read verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them. So this is the man who's been sinned against, the two witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. This is step three. One-to-one calls to repent have failed. The help of others has failed. Time has been given And still, no repentance, Jesus says at this point, get the church together. We need more people praying. We we need more people pleading. Now, a couple more points to clarify here. Church discipline is for unrepentant sin. Perhaps I should have said that earlier. But church discipline is for unrepentant sin. Serious and evidentially verified and unrepentant sin. So the person who is under discipline is acting in such a way by not repenting of their sin that they're betraying their confession of faith. And the church now loses her ability to affirm that person in their faith. They're acting in a way that betrays their confession by living in open sin, unrepentant sin. And I I belabor this point only because, and you need to hear this clearly, corrective discipline in the church is not for the individual who's struggling with sin. 
if someone in the membership is fighting against sin, warring against sin, struggling against sin, involving their elders to help them pray and to be discipled, to overcome temptation to sin. That is not who we're talking about. Someone who is fighting and warring against sin, working with their elders, is doing what Christians are supposed to do. Our Lord is talking about those who are walking in open and unrepentant sin that has severed a relationship between a brother and sister in the Lord. Remember, we've got, we got to keep remembering this is about the relationship that Christ died to purchase. Additionally, this is not meant, by telling it to the church, this is not meant to publicly shame this individual. It's meant to ratchet up the seriousness of unrepentant sin on the life of a person. Private efforts to bring this brother to repent have failed. Time has been given. More people are involved. And still, we're trying to keep it small. We're still trying to keep it private. More time has been given. And still, this brother's heart is hard. And so now his whole church is asked to get involved and to pray for him. And then in whatever way is appropriate to engage him and to call him to repent. And then notice, even in verse 17, more time is given. If he refuses to listen even to the church. So there's a sense in which the church is now taking an active role, praying for him, pleading with him. And if he still refuses to listen, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Now, Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience. They would have understood him to mean that Treat him as an outsider, someone who is outside the covenant family of God. So, in New Testament vernacular, treat him as an unbeliever. This is because his church's relationship to him has fundamentally changed. They have lost their ability to affirm he's in the faith. You see, in church membership, one of the things we do is we offer an affirmation to one another. Best as we can tell, this is someone who is a Christian. This is what a Christian is. This is what a Christian looks like. Someone who is acknowledging sin, turning from sin, warring against sin, but never comfortable with sin. And this unrepentant man, after so many attempts to help him, calls that church's affirmation of his faith into question. And so the church is forced to suspend his membership and to keep him from receiving the Lord's Supper. He becomes someone to be evangelized. He is not shunned. Pickle Baptist Church, we do not practice shunning. We're not telling people to put a scarlet A on them and walk around through our society. That's not what this is. In most cases, a brother or sister under church discipline, we would want them to be in our worship services. 
an unrepentant sinner? Where do you want them? You want them in church where they're here the gospel and by God's grace their heart will be softened and they would repent and believe. So they might be removed from church membership, but they will always be welcomed into church worship. And if at any point, at any point in the future, should this unrepentant brother or sister repent, the whole church rushes to forgive them. And they become like the father and the prodigal son who rushes out to meet him and throws their collective arms around him and slaughters the fatted carrion dinner and celebrates repentance. And that first Sunday back, that this repentant sinner is restored to fellowship and receives the Lord's Supper, it's like the Lord is shining a bright beacon on the gospel of God's grace to save sinners. And we get to be a part of that. It's joyful and glorious. Corrective discipline is hard and heavy and sadly necessary for the purity of the church and for the reputation of Christ. Now, to wrap things up, I would like to address the third leg of the stool. Restorative discipline. And to do so, we'll do a case study of church discipline in the New Testament in the church at Corinth. Because it seems to me we have in the example of the church at Corinth a case of restorative discipline. So if you still have your Bible open, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that's page 954 of the church Bible. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Big chunk of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, case study in church discipline and church restoration. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the letter to the Corinthians, says this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. For though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And if present, I've already pronounced judgment of the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. 
For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would have to need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler. Not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So here we have a case study in corrective church discipline. Some guy in the Corinthian church is sleeping with his father's wife, which is gross enough. But what's even more gross is that the church is boasting in it. And Paul gives instructions to them in verse 2 and says, Let him be removed from among you. When you assemble, deliver him over to Satan, so that his flesh would be destroyed, but his spirit would be saved. And notice Paul's concern is for the purity of the church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So this is about two things. It's about the soul of the sinner, and it's about the sanctity of the church. It's about the reputation of Christ. Now, 1 Corinthians was written probably around 53 or 54 A.D., and after Paul wrote this letter to address these issues at Corinth, some time passes, there's some history going on between Paul and the Corinthian church. A year passes, maybe two passes, and Paul writes more letters to the Corinthian church. And we have one of those letters. We call it 2 Corinthians. And so if you have your Bible open, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, just a few pages. Paul addresses this issue, this man sleeping with his mother, his father's wife, mother-in-law, or whatever she would be, stepmother, and then um, some time passes, a year or two, and then we have this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too strongly, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Now, we don't know for sure 
whether or not the person mentioned here in 2 Corinthians 2 is the same man who is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5. Whether it is or whether it isn't, I think you see the point. Someone in the church had been had sinned, and the church was forced to deal with that sin, a sin that caused pain to the whole church. The punishment by the majority is enough, Paul says. The congregation had to act. And apparently the man repented, because now the apostle tells the church, turn toward him, comfort Reaffirm your love for him. And the church restores this man in love. Here's the whole point of this. Every person in this room, whether you've bound the knee to Jesus Christ or not, has sinned against God. And that our sin against so glorious a God has incurred his just wrath. And in His love, God the Son came into the world to absorb the wrath of God in our place. That Jesus' perfect life was a substitute for our soiled life. And He died and was buried and was risen on the third day. And for all who put their faith in Him, God wraps them in His righteousness fills them with His Spirit and makes them new. A new man, a new woman with new affections, a new lease on life, new priorities, new goals, a full-fledged member of His family. But if that's not true of you, sinner, turn to Jesus Christ today. Trust in Him. Confess your sins. Lay them before Him and ask for His mercy. And God, because He is great in mercy, will forgive you of those sins and unite you to Christ, credit you with the very righteousness of Christ, and give you eternal life. If you've never done that, do that today before you leave this place and tell someone about it. We'd love to begin meeting with you, telling you more about the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. For those of you who have already trusted in Christ, Give the rest of your life to battling temptation. For remnants of the old man linger still in your body. The desires of the flesh are warring against the desires of the spirit. Every day of your life is a practice of dying to self and living to Christ. It's a practice of putting off the old man and putting on Christ. And I hope that you've seen here today that your faith is a community project. No one walks this path alone because they can't. And God knows this. This is why God gives us a church family. Brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow sin sufferers who tether themselves to us, give themselves to us for our good. Lock arms with us. Offer strength to us when we're weak. Encouragement to us when we're sad. Who bear our burdens when we are weighed down. Who love us enough that when we are being weighed down by sin to come alongside us and to fight with us 
And when we refuse to fight, they decide to take over and to fight with us, to gently and patiently correct us, and then to restore us when we repent. All of this is so that you, dear Christian, would be healthy. You would have a healthy heart. Because your brother and sister in your church know that one day they're going to need you to do for them what they did for you. They're going to need the same formative and corrective care that they gave to you. Because they know that when every part is working properly, the whole body builds itself up in love. Can you become the Christ-exalting worshiper of God He's called you to be without the church? I don't know. But I do know that by your God-given connection to the church, you can obtain to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That much I do know. And that means, in order for us to get there, we need to be a church that operates in love. Formative discipline, corrective discipline, restorative discipline, all in love for the reputation of Jesus Christ in Piqua, Miami County, and the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the church of Jesus Christ, for having united us to Him and to His body. In your mercy and in your kindness, you have given us a family, an imperfect one, but a beautiful one. And Lord, would you please forgive us for neglecting to care for our brothers and sisters, for neglecting to address sin in our own life, and for submitting to correction from others. Please have mercy on us for putting up walls and taking, taking forgiveness from your hands and then refusing to give it to others. Forgive us for keeping distance between ourselves and others, for an unwillingness to pursue reconciliation. Have mercy on those of us here who are conflict-averse, who would just rather not deal with things. Give us grace to have the hard conversations, to speak the truth, but not just to speak the truth, to speak it in love. And forgive us, O Lord, for slander. Forgive us for gossip. Forgive us for not keeping the offense between you and Him alone, as Jesus said. Forgive us the corrupting talk that comes out of our mouths. And Lord, grant to this church a healthy gospel culture. Make forgiveness and reconciliation just simply the air we breathe. Make it easy. Make it full and make it fast. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from us along with all malice. For Jesus' sake we ask. Amen. And if you would please stand to your feet. Something we do at the end of our services is offer an assurance of pardon, having confessed our sins to the Lord.
we go to God's Word looking for an assurance of pardon. This is a different verse than the one that's in your handout, but I think it's apropos. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Brothers, lead us.